Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Happy holidays. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. This is Stacy Wedding, and I'm here with my colleague, Andy Shurick. We're happy to be here with you, and we hope you're surviving the holiday madness. I know it's a crazy time of year, and we appreciate you listening and uh, taking the time to send us your questions, which, as you know, you can do by going to nonprofiteverything.com or checking out our host's website, which is Anne, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Thank you, Anne. And uh, you can just go to that website, too, to submit your questions. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. One thing I wanted to add, just if you don't realize it, if you go to the Nonprofit Everything website, way down at the bottom, there's a, a tag cloud that has all of the topics of all of the questions that Stacy and I have gotten so far. And if you click that, it'll open up the episodes. You look at the individual episodes, and it tells you specifically what question we're answering. And then you can click the time link next to it and just go directly to that question so you don't have to listen to our annoying intros. Yeah, right. If you're like me, I always skip past that when I listen to podcasts. So, you know, hey, we won't take it personally. So the chance that you're listening to this is low. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, for those who are, happy holidays and happy new year. executive director of a small nonprofit. We have only five staff and one of them far surpassed some of her goals for the year. Would it be okay for me to give her a bonus and not to give the other staff a bonus? Or if I give the other staff a bonus, would it be a problem for me to give her a higher one? I'm trying to figure out what is fair and how to handle this in a small office environment. You're just going to make enemies no matter what you do, I think is the answer, right? Yeah. Um, The the challenge here is that you're thinking about this after, like not before. Right. So the the correct way to do it, and this doesn't answer your question, but the correct way to do it is to make sure that you've got that kind of stuff spelled out in a very clear way in your budget so that you know that there is a pool of money that you're going to keep for bonuses and what the process is for determining who gets what bonus and how much they get. And if your employees know that ahead of time and they're clear on how it all works, you're going to have happy employees. If it seems capricious and random and this person got a bonus because they suck up to the ED more than everybody else, you're going to have angry employees. So so getting it clear and – I mean because people don't like – I mean they like to be surprised in a good way. They don't like to be surprised in a bad way. And in a small – I think not even in a small office environment, in every single nonprofit because – some salaries show up on the 990 because the budgets get passed around to everybody so that everybody has, you know, some information on it. Um, everybody's pay is not a secret. Everybody knows what everybody else is paid. If you don't think that's the case, you're totally deluded. Because yeah. down at the, you know, the top levels, you may be like, no, of course, the, you know, our finance director takes care of that. And it's in a secret password protected Excel file. You're like, yeah, except for that password protected Excel file has been broken into 15 different grant applications spread all over the world, and we know exactly what everybody makes all the time. So, so it'll never be a secret, and you have to take that into consideration and make sure that in your, you know, your feeling of largesse about this person really exceeding their goals, um, you want to give them a bunch of money, but you are going to make the other four people irritated. Absolutely. And while you have the discretion to do it, you do have to think about overall morale. And one of the questions I would ask back to you is, is there an opportunity to look at 
you know, bonuses obviously are discretionary. Staff need to realize they're discretionary. It's based on sort of going however you define it when you actually share this with staff. Here's an opportunity, right, being ahead of the game. Here's an opportunity for the next year of having a bonus. If we, you know, if we far exceed these goals and if, you know, if you go above and beyond and here's what above and beyond looks like, it helps people have some more clarity around it um, instead of it feeling like favoritism, which I think sometimes can happen with this stuff. So I think some of this is managing expectations with staff. Um, But also, is there an opportunity to, you know, um, look at group goals? Like, did the organization surpass or blow goals, you know, out of the water? And everyone on the team, especially if it's a small team, probably played some role in that. So perhaps there is, is room to reward everybody, um, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in sort of group, group bonus, group bonuses. Like, so if we as an organization meet these three goals this year, right, everyone is going to be eligible for a bonus of X or whatever. So it's really clear. And then everyone is kind of like, all right, we rally together. It's not about, oh, that's not in my job description. So I think there's cool opportunities for the future. I know that doesn't help right now, but right now I think the reality is, is, yeah, you got to be sensitive to the morale and what that's going to do. Yeah, uh, one of the really cool things about nonprofits is that um, you don't you don't ever have to figure out what the point of your organization is. So in in a for profit business, it's like let's just make some more money, right? There's never, I mean, occasionally there is, but usually there's not like a social purpose that's attached to it. Maybe one day, but not yet. Um, nonprofits are the exact opposite, where you know why you're there. It's 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 written in the mission. It's there in the vision. You know exactly what direction you're supposed to be going, and so you should be able to, if you're a good organization, figure out like what each person's contribution, how that adds up to getting to what your mission is. So figuring out exactly what you said. What is the group goal? Like if if we're gonna if we're gonna serve X number of people, like if we get over it by a particular amount we're going to take this pool of money that we've raised and we're going to actually spend it on, on giving the employees a little bit of extra money yeah. at the end of the year. Yeah. I've seen it. And, and interestingly, it, it usually gets crossed up and damaged when you get large organizations. So small organizations, like they're like, Oh, a bonus, that would be a dream. Like that's never <laughs> happening. Right. Big organizations is when they start to think about it and that's where they get it wrong because then it's the, you know, the, if the development team hits their goals, they're going to get this. Right. And that's, absolutely the wrong way to do it. You, you need to be looking at that sort of holistic organizational goal to make sure, drive home the point that everybody here is important to reaching absolutely. our mission and not, it's not just your team, you know, because some people like there's the, the guy that, you know, you, if you're a big enough organization, you may have some person whose job it is, is emptying trash cans. Right. Like, okay, is, what's that person's bonus? You know, yeah. if you empty all the trash cans <laughs> faster, you get extra money, right? right? So like making it granular to the employee is, it's good for that employee's like personal development plan, you know, which you should have in place as well. Everybody should have their own personal incentive that's based on what their goals are, yeah. and that's about their development. But then bonus, honest, you know, it's opinion now. We're way, we're off an opinion <laughs> line. Bonus should mean organizational goals, and it should be very specific about how that bonus is going to be divided up. I completely agree. And what I think you run the risk of when you do a bonus, and especially if you do it more than one year in a row, I. I have found that it is very easy for the mindset, if it's not very clearly articulated like we're talking about, it's very easy for the mindset to become one of expectation, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a year in bonus, right? And that, ugh, that gets dangerous. So Mm -hmm. um, there's also a good resource. So, you know, um, 
an alliance for Nevada nonprofits, I believe, is a part of National Council of Nonprofits. Uh And the National Council of Nonprofits has some great, if you just were to even type in sort of employee bonus plans, but they've got um, guidance on bonus and incentive compensation. And especially, they also have guidance on what the IRS defines as acceptable too, because you want to make sure you're on you know, the up and up with all this. Yeah. And that's one final note as uh, another pitch for the 2018 salary compensation survey that you can get from the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits website. It's up there. If you're a member, you get a discount. Um, if you join now, you can still get the discount because <laughs> you didn't have to be a member when, when it was produced. Um, and that actually has sections on bonuses and compensation. It tells you what percentage of organizations pay bonuses, what percentage of bonus, what number they come up with, how they generate it. All that information is in there, and it's really useful if you're trying to pitch it to your board that we want to do this. You can point at it and say, well, you know, 46% of organizations or whatever it is do it. It's a great resource. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything. We are so glad to have you here with us. And we're also excited today to have our special guest, Anthony Alonzo, who is the co-founder and the president of Catapult Fundraising. Um, I've known Anthony for quite some time, and you know he is one of our nation's best when it comes to direct marketing, telefundraising, you name it. This guy knows his stuff. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, my pleasure, and uh, I think your introduction, you know, suffices. Uh, uh, I have been doing this since 1985, which really dates me, uh, but gives me a vast uh, uh, resource in terms of experience, uh, having worked with universities, hospitals, arts organizations all across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Uh, over those uh well, how many years is that? <laughs> a lot of years since 1985. So if I can lend any perspective to your uh, listeners, I'm happy to. And I know you had a question. Yeah, no, thank you for, for being here. The question, you know, started with this. I know we should probably start doing some direct response fundraising like a mailed appeal, but our board doesn't want to give people on our list the opportunity to donate $25 when they could be $25,000 donors. I guess we should be doing list list segmentation and stuff like that. But who has the time for that? Should I give up? What should I do? Well, that's a question I hear often. And, um, you know, the, my response always starts with who doesn't have the time for that? Yeah. Um, list segmentation is really critical uh, to any appeal that you send out, whether it be to a $25 donor or a $25,000 donor. Uh, I always follow the rule uh, which all of us in fundraising have heard for years, and that's that you have to have the right person doing the asking for the right person the right way with the right amount. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. Um, but whether whether you're reaching out to a $25 or a $50 donor or a $25,000 donor, you need to have an ask amount in any mailing that you do uh, because otherwise you're not giving the donor an opp- opportunity to upgrade and to raise their sites which has to be your goal. So in this particular case with this question, uh, I believe the board is right if they're the ones in fact saying that uh, they don't want someone who's a $25,000 donor to give $25. If you do not uh, lend direction in terms of an ask amount in the appeal that you're sending out, uh, then you're not gonna get the $25,000 gift they're capable of. Um, I like to see it you know, direct responses as tiers. Uh, you're, it's at the, at the bottom end when you're using text messaging, when you're using email, when you're using 
uh, direct mail, uh, you're sifting for gold. You're looking for acquisition. Uh, you're trying to renew the $25 or $50 donor. And then you have to get to a more personalized process as you get to those mid-level donors. Uh, you should be using a combination of different channels, email, pre-call letters, and then a phone call uh, to make the ask. It really gives the person an opportunity to have a conversation um, and up, uh, about their giving and about upgrading their giving. And all of those uh, should be uh, volunteer-driven. So what I mean by that, it, it should be a peer that's signing those letters rather than coming from the institution and preferably a peer that has something in common with the donor. So if you're in a healthcare situation, you, you want to look at different departments and have someone who's a donor who's used a certain department uh, actually send a letter to those who have used that same department. If you're in a, in a university setting, uh, you want to try to do some segmentation, perhaps by, by cluster, decade cluster. Uh, and I say decade cluster because, you know, for example, in a university setting, those that graduated in the late 70s uh, are going to have more in common with those that graduated in the early 80s. And those that graduated in the late 60s are going to have more in common with those who graduated in the, late, in the early 70s, just yep. because of what was going on in the nation. Yep. So you have to be careful when you look at decade clusters. Uh, again, in a university setting, you can also look at degrees. Uh, you want to find something that the prospects have in common and have, have it be a peer-to-peer -peer solicitation that is absolutely segmented and has a specific ask amount in it. Uh, and, and I like the idea of uh, setting that ask amount uh, in installments. So the theory being that if someone's comfortable making a $100 gift, one way to potentially upgrade them is to ask them to write that $100 check four times a year. Is there a rule of thumb? Um, I know some listening are probably thinking, okay, how do I decide? So if someone's always traditionally been a $100 donor, is there some kind of equation or formula of what how that should increase the following year or some science behind that? Any light you can shed for those, our listeners? Well, of course, fundraising is a little science and a little art. Yes. <laughs> There's a little bit of both always involved. Uh, if you're doing a direct mail solicitation uh, where there's going to be no personal contact, I, I always like to look at uh, two and a half times their previous uh, gift as an ask. With the fallback, so if you've got a pledge card that goes in there, your first ask should be two and a half times what they've given in the past, then somewhere in between, and then the fallback should be their previous gift uh, in, the, in that letter. If you're, if you're making a telephone call to follow up, uh, then you should be asking for three to four times their previous given, giving, uh, again, broken down in installments is, is the way I like to do it. So it's, it, it allows a donor who's given $100 in the past to see their way towards making perhaps a $400 gift. That's the check they're comfortable writing. You're just asking them to do it multiple times. And uh, when I speak across the country, I always say that the church still gets the majority of the philanthropic dollars in this country. And the reason is because they ask every single week. <laughs> so true, right? Yeah, as, as fundraisers, we've gotten into this habit of, and, and we call it this, of saying annual giving is annual, uh, yeah. <laughs> meaning only once a year. Oh, and, 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 and that's not necessarily true. And so we've trained donors in a lot of cases to think that way. Oh, I give my, my, my gift at the end of the year. Um, 
I like to train donors into, into giving quarterly installments or multiple times a year uh, because that gets them into the habit of giving. And out of sight, out of mind, it becomes a lot more difficult to take a lapsed donor and bring them back into the fold than, and more costly than it is to just renew a donor. Well, and I love the idea of this whole donor retention that we keep hearing about across the nation, right? Plummeting, donor retention, donor retention's falling, and um, looking at some ways to make that um, so that we, you know, we can make sure a donor stays engaged, that we're asking multiple times, but hopefully that we're doing those other things. I'm sure you would advise and probably have some feedback on that, but doing other things between the asks so the donor doesn't always feel like all they are is a checkbook or a credit card. Agreed. One of the things that, you know, we run into as a firm all the time is is folks who think that social media, emails are, are replacing more traditional ways of fundraising. And uh, I always like to say that they shouldn't be replacing traditional ways of fundraising. And when I say traditional ways, I mean face-to-face, telephone, uh, etc. Those are still the two most effective ways to solicit donors is face-to-face and then telephone. The other mediums haven't gotten there. Now they should be used and can effectively be used to thank donors, to keep them informed, uh, to have those touches throughout the year that are gonna lend their way towards upgraded giving and donors feeling you know, warm and fuzzy. People give because it makes them feel good, because they believe in your mission. Um, and it's important that you're constantly using all these different uh, social media platforms that are out there to do that, to tell your story, uh, but then not lose sight of traditional fundraising methodologies and the fact that personalization is key. Uh, there's not, I, I believe one of the reasons donor retention is falling off the charts is because we're losing our way. Uh, we're not realizing that whatever medium it is we're using, it still has to be personalized. The yeah. donor still has to feel special. Um, and it's, it's difficult to do that when you're using text to give or when you're using emails uh, and people are not putting the time into making them personalized. No, it's, um, I, I love that. The personalization, I, I mean, I think anybody listening probably has donated as well as, you know, is working for an organization that, you know, is probably asking donors for money. And you think about the difference it makes to get the, you know, the general blanket email that you know has gone to masses and thousands versus the, you know, dear Stacy, do you know your gift of $100 last year did this? And here's what you could do this year, you know, throughout the year. I mean, how, what a different feeling that is. Absolutely. All of the emails we send as a firm, for example, are all personalized. Uh, they're all over the signature of a, of a peer solicitor rather than coming from the institutional's voice, institution's voice. It's coming from the voice of a peer telling their story as to why they give, why they believe it's important. Uh, to give back to the institution. So that's kind of a different slant. We test, which which we have an opportunity to do, and I encourage nonprofits to do, different uh, subject lines. You're gonna find that some subject lines uh, get, get read more than others. Yeah. Um, and with the technology that's available uh, today, we can actually use uh, email and further personalize things. Because mm-hmm. we can see where people, what links they go to, what their interests are. The problem is nobody wants to spend the time doing it. Yeah. Um, and again, I go back to what I originally said, and that's we don't have time not to do it uh, because those things are going to make a world of difference in moving forward the missions of the institutions we serve, which is the goal. 
You know, we, we have a unique opportunity here. I always say, you know, people say, you know, sometimes to me, telefundraising is dead. Well, it's not. No. You know, the truth is it raises just as much money uh, as face-to-face as -face solicitation sometimes and certainly more than, than uh, direct mail and, and email solicitations. And I always like to say this is no longer your grandfather's. I, I don't know, Stacey, you're not as old as me, but the old commercials, this isn't your father's Chevy. You know, this is no longer your father's telephone. Totally. We have people walking around with a computer in their hands where we can reach them through all of these multi-channel ways, right. uh, email, uh, texting, telephone. They're walking around with it. It's actually a unique opportunity for fundraisers if we, if we learn how to capitalize on it. I love it. I love it. Well, I have two sort of brass tack kind of uh, questions, uh, sort of follow-ups to what you were talking about. So when we talk about the idea, and I love the idea of peer, you know, sort of a, a peer process, a peer-driven process, um, making sure that that communication is by someone that is considered a peer. Do you have some helpful hints of how people can identify those peers? If someone's listening, you know, I'm sure they're thinking, well, how do I even go about finding that peer? Is it just, is it a board member? Can I extend beyond a board? What, what are some ideas out there you have? Well, my response to that question to clients is always, you want to pick somebody who is not a board member, because again, even though a board member is a volunteer, it's a little self-serving and it's coming from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is pick someone who you want to cultivate. So a, a donor, look at your database, look for a donor that you want to cultivate into a mid-level donor or a major gift prospect and ask them to, to share their story as to why they're giving. It, it's a way for them to become more involved with the organization and for you to have that dialogue with them and get that process started of moving them up the giving pyramid. Love it. Love it. Um, and then for somebody, you know, we have a lot of um, different sized organizations that listen to the podcast, but we do have a lot of the sort of the ones just sort of getting up and running the smaller mid-sized organizations. So certainly not the university or healthcare systems level. So when you think of like a, a small to mid-sized organization that is saying, God, I'm wearing 10 hats, you know, which I'm, I'm sensing is probably where this person who wrote this question came from. How, how in the world do I do list segmentation? So are there some, um, I realize that it, you've made it clear that's, that's absolutely something important to do, but are there some steps to make it a little easier? Are there, how much time should someone be giving to do something like this? And I'm sure it depends on donor size, right? Donor database size. But I guess if you can give some general guidance on how to help the small shop that's trying to figure this out. Sure. Well, the first thing is to try to parlay the resources you have, uh, potentially even a small organization. And we work with plenty of small organizations and some uh, right here in Nevada um, have volunteers on their board that know about uh, database management, that can run queries. Uh, so I would start there and try to get volunteers to help. I would also start uh, by doing a very generic uh, segmentation rather than look at, you know, particular, you know, in a university, you mentioned you can look at degrees, you can look at, you know, with a small organization, start with some common denominator, right? Maybe folks who attended an event versus those that didn't, mm -hmm. because I think you want to address those people differently that came to one of your events. Mm -hmm. They're obviously more loyal. 
Uh, and so you want to thank them in that letter uh, for attending the event. That's a simple, simple segmentation, but it makes a huge difference. When yeah. you're able to acknowledge the donor, we know that you've come to XYZ event. Nowadays, even for small organizations, there's with Word, with all the tools that are out there, uh, you can insert you know, what event they, they went to and personalize a letter. That in and of itself will make a difference. When, when you think about how you identify, I mean, um, you know, some people probably look at their list and they say, how do I know this is, has been a $25 donor or this has been whatever, $250 donor. How do I, how do I even know if they're a potentially capable of a t being making a $25,000 gift? Just using the example that the, the reader said. Um, is there any way to do that other than sort of sophisticated well screening tools or any way someone can figure that out? Anthony? Well, there's a variety of, of ways. One of the things you can do within your own uh, community is, is do a, a zip code overlay. Um, you know, uh, through a Google search, you can find out which are the wealthiest zip codes in your area uh, and just do queries based on that. So you don't have to send it to a wealth engine or a donor search if you don't have the, the budget to do that. Uh, but you can look at zip codes within your area uh, and assign ask amounts based on those zip codes. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that I like to look at is is number of years of consecutive giving. Mm -hmm. You know, if if someone has given uh, for fifty dollars for ten years, fifty dollars a year, they probably have some potential, and they certainly are loyal uh, to the organization. In fact, they're typically a very good plan giving prospect, uh, regardless of of the amount, because they've shown their loyalty. Uh, to the organization. So while they may not be able to make a $25,000 gift outright, it's certainly somebody that could be on your radar for potentially a planned giving ask because they may be able to, to make a, a, an estate gift of $50,000. Right. It's the major gift of the middle class uh, nowadays. So those are things you want to look at and you can look at even if you're a small shop. Um, how many times they, they, they come to events, whether they volunteer, all of these things really start shaping up the loyalty and start speaking to you in terms of, of an ask amount and where this person might be. Um, and I understand that the, a lot of small shops don't have the resources to do the donor search or the, uh, and I say donor search because we use donor search, uh, but a lot of the services that are out there, but there are little things that you can do internally uh, that don't take a lot of a lot of time or or energy. I love that. Thank you for that because I, I do think sometimes people can feel discouraged thinking uh, that they'll they'll never be able to do some of these more sophisticated or implement these sophisticated systems. When at the end of the day, it sounds like anyone, any size, it's about um, some pretty basic principles. According to what you said, you know, you've got some basic infrastructure and database tracking, some personalization, the, the peer piece, and uh, not having that have to be a board member. Um, I mean, these these are, I love the idea of, of installments. Um, what a great digestible way to, to increase the, the, the funding and, and upgrade the donors. So I love this. Yeah. The other thing with it, with installments, if I may, uh, you were talking about identifying people who, who may be that $25,000 gift. Um, one of the other things with installments is if you ask somebody who's a $100 donor for $400 broken down in installments over the course of the year, and they say yes to that, they will also self-identify themselves many times by writing you a $400 check as soon as they get the first reminder. Hmm. Well, now they're on your radar screen. 
they've self-identified as having greater potential. Wow. If they're able to write it out. So that's the other benefit that I like about that. Because some folks will do that. They'll just write you out a check for the full amount. Well, now they've told you something. This is someone you should look into. You should do a little research and find out a little bit more about. Well, we appreciate you sharing your years of expertise and uh, I, you know, your wisdom and uh, you've, you've seen it all. So appreciate it. We'll make sure to put all of your contact info in our notes section on the website for um, those who just want to click on it and get in touch with you directly. And Anthony, I can't thank you enough for uh, just sharing, sharing some helpful tips that I think are going to be, be uh, valuable to a lot of our listeners. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Stacey. It's always a, a privilege to talk to you. That's it. You did it. You've successfully made it to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Um, Stacy and I thank you very much for taking the opportunity to listen to us. Um, please, if you haven't, visit the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Check out their website. See what kinds of things they've got available for you. And please, 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 if you've been listening to this and at some point during it you're like, I wonder, try to type that out and shoot it to us in the question section. We This whole thing thrives on us getting awesome questions from our audience. So please do that. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm.